Acts 14, 8 through 20. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet, he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconian and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Bartimaeus left for Derby. The word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Who or what are we worshiping? That's what we're going to focus on this morning. Who or what, and maybe you can make that personal yourself, are, are you worshiping? David Foster Wallace uh, was a university professor of creative writing and a famous novelist. He tragically passed away in 2008. Uh, his uh, most famous novel is called uh, Infinite Jest. It's been named one of the best 100 English-speaking uh, novels ever. And his uh, posthumous novel, he, he almost completed it, Pale King was nominated for the Pulitzer. I think uh, David Foster Wallace was, was haunted by God. I think you see that in his, his writings. He was attending a, a Mennonite church before he died. I like to think that uh, he knew Jesus. In uh, 2005, he was asked to give a commencement speech at Kenyon College in Ohio. Kenyon College is a small liberal arts school. It's got, uh, it's got kind of an Ivy League vibe for you to picture the scene on commencement day. So David Foster Wallace came in and Time Magazine has since called this speech uh, the, the greatest commencement speech ever given. It's called This is Water and you can find it online. I, I encourage you to, to read it. Here's how he opens. <clears throat> so picture bunch of college students and their parents, Ivy League type setting. Here they go. Here comes this kind of bedraggled literary prof giving their commencement speech. And he opens it this way. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. 
who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over the other and goes, what the heck is water? He didn't say heck, but you get the point. The idea that he's getting to in the speech and he begins to unpack is that the most important things, the most obvious important realities in our life are the things we don't even notice. It's kind of the air we breathe, or for fish, the water they swim in. Uh, He said uh, many, many brilliant things, and I'll quote him several times throughout the message as we make our way through this passage. But here's kind of the core, the nut of what he said to those young colleges today, and I think it's incredibly true. David says, uh, because here's something else that's weird but true in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, go get them, class of 2005. Who are we worshiping? Who are you worshiping? Or what are you worshiping? What are we worshiping? We're, uh, we're in the middle of this series on uh, the book of Acts uh, called On Mission, A Study of Acts. And we've been in it for quite a while, and usually we try to have shorter series, but we're just keeping on with Acts. We took a break, as you probably know if you've been with us around Advent, and uh, we're back in it because we are in real time trying to answer the question for this church, what does a faithful church in America look like in 2023? And if there's any book that can give us some idea, I think it's the book of Acts, both things to do and things not to do. We'll see both in the book of Acts. Acts is kind of the sequel to Luke's gospel. Luke was a historian uh, who traveled with the Apostle Paul, and and he's writing to this person, uh, maybe this person called Theophilus. Scholars, biblical scholars disagree, was Theophilus a real person? Or was kind of his a literary foil, kind of like, and they would, they would do that. This was a literary device they would use, kind of create this person that wasn't real to write a, a book to. We don't know, it doesn't really matter. But Theophilus means lover of God. So whether he was real or whether he wasn't, Luke is writing to lovers of God, people who love God, people who want to follow Jesus. And he's like, let's look at, he gives us Jesus' life, and then he looks, let's look at the, the, the birth and the rapid growth, sometimes in fits and starts, of the early church. And that's what we as a church are honing in on, we're watching. And as you've kind of been with us, we kind of launched and there's all those early scenes and the coming of the Holy Spirit and these speeches and we'll look at more speeches. There are lots of speeches in Acts. And the camera is kind of tuned to like Peter and John and those early apostles. And then, and then the, the heat starts to turn up, right? The persecution starts to turn up. The Sanhedrin's getting fired up, they're angry. And then Stephen gives his life willingly. He's the first double martyr, that word witness. And that takes us back to Acts 1.8, and I wanna remind us of that as we kind of launch back into this Acts series. It says this. This is kind of the key thesis of the book of Acts. But you, and this would be us if we follow Jesus, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. That Greek word is martyr. In Jerusalem, Judea, they're going out. Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is kind of what we're tracking. This is what we're seeing. And this is our call as a church. This word witnesses is crucial. It's all over Acts. What does it look like to be a witness? So as we're understanding it, people should be able to look look at me and you and New Hope Church and get some inclination what Jesus looks like. That's heavy pressure. 
<laughs> Let's go to the idea, though. As the Spirit of God is working through us, people are supposed to get some taste of the kingdom of God. And what does that look like? And that's what we're following. So the heat's turning up. The camera moves from Peter and John to this character, well, it was Saul, as he was watching Stephen be stoned. He was in charge of that, right? Then Jesus interrupts him on the road to Damascus, speaks to him, calls him to a new way of living, and his life is radically changed, and now the, the camera and the focus goes to this character, Paul, which Peter and John, they'll be, coming in, they'll be in and out of the story, but now Paul is our focal character. He begins to live out Acts 1.8 and he will be the primary voice that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth as this Jewish Pharisee rabbi guy. So that's what we're watching. So little context for the passage you just heard Sherry read. Paul and Barnabas, we were introduced to him earlier when uh, he was mentioned as kind of this generous benefactor, and Ananias and Sapphira weren't. He was in that story, just a little bit of him. But uh, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by a group of praying people to go. They're like, you're supposed to go. And so in Acts, and we'll kind of track this a little bit, it's not that important, but it's interesting, Paul has three separate missionary journeys. The guy traveled a lot. And this is the beginning of his first. So if you're a map person, if you like to know where you're at in the world, and many of you are like, I'm not, so you don't even have to pay attention, but there's a map that'll come up, and it'll kind of track. So Paul is sent out, and he goes to Cyprus, and then he goes to what is modern-day Turkey and some of the cities uh, that Sherry mentioned are these little communities in what is modern-day Turkey. Iconium, so he goes there, and then he, he's preaching, and he's giving the gospel, and he would always start, we're told four times in the book of Acts, he's always going to the sand, uh, the, to the, um, he starts in the synagogues. So a synagogue is like the Jewish church. Anywhere you go in these little towns, there'd be a synagogue, and so the Jewish people that lived in, in the kind of Gentile Greek-speaking world would gather together at these churches. Well, Paul missionally starts with the people who know. He starts with the people he knows. And that's a really good missional learning for us. And he would go in and then he would say like, you're missing a key component of the story and let me give you the gospel. And what is Paul's gospel? My professor, Scott McKnight, he's the, he's the author of our Big Read, which is still out there. I encourage you to pick up a copy as we make our way through Acts. He says this was Paul's message. This was Paul's gospel. Israel's story about a future Davidic king is fulfilled in King Jesus as Messiah. He, Jesus, is the content of the gospel and the benefits of the gospel are forgiveness and justification. And these benefits are given only to those who surrender entrusting allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King. So just like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is entering himself into the story and saying, I am the focal point, I'm the key point to Israel's story. I am the Messiah, I am the King, I am the fulfillment. That's what Paul's doing. So he'd be in broad agreement with them on a lot of things and then he wouldn't. And we're told, every place he went, every synagogue, and this happened in Iconium, that some became believers. Some were like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. And then some wanted to kill him. And that's kind of like church in America in 2023, right? Being a pastor. So he, uh, he, he hears word that those who want to kill him literally want to kill him. And they're planning to try to track him down and stone him. And so he slips out. He's done his work there. He slips out with Barnabas in the night, and he takes what is a Roman road. It was a paved road, an 18-mile road, uh, between Iconium and Lystra, which is the scene 
of our story that we heard today. So they, they walk that 18 mile journey, probably at night, hopefully getting away from this group that wants to stone them, and they enter into the synagogue, and they begin to do the same thing again. So that's kind of the context. It's helpful to we don't just get dropped into these things that we know what is going on. So then we have this scene that's very similar to an earlier scene of Acts with Peter. So it's kind of like Paul's taking Peter's playbook, and they're walking through, Paul and Barnabas, and, and they're preaching, and they see a lame man watching them, and the, Luke tells us that Paul could see this man, kind of like I can see some of you maybe in the, in the back pews there rows, and he sees him as he's preaching, he's making eye contact, and I can tell this what I'm preaching, those of you who are paying attention and those who are checking their phone, you know, I can tell, just know that. And so he could tell somebody's resonating, and he says he knew that lame man wanted to be healed. So he asked him, he's like, do you want to be healed? And yes, and then he tells him to get up. And this is a crazy scene because this is a small town. Everybody would know this guy from birth and he's probably lame from birth and everybody thought it was because of his sin and his brokenness. And that's what the gospel does is it comes in and brings brokenness back to life. And this man, yes, I want to be healed. And he gets up and then the crowd sees what happens because they've seen this man probably lame since birth and they're like, wait a second, this is incredible. And this is what they say. They respond by shouting, the gods have come down to us in human form. So they're referring to Paul and Barnabas and they call Paul Hermes and they call Barnabas Zeus. Now a little backstory and this will really help because this is kind of weird, right? This would be weird for us. But this is how people thought in the ancient Near East, particularly in Lystra. Because right in this area, there was a folklore myth that predated, uh, who knows how long it went back, but we, we know that it was a myth that was told as kids grew up in that community, that at some point, Zeus and Hermes had come to their area. And the story is Zeus and Hermes had come and like knocked on a thousand doors looking for like shelter. They're, they're clothed as humans. They look like humans. They're knock, 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 no, knock, 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 no, knock, knock, get it, get it, get it. Finally, someone lets them in and they're a poor, simple couple and they just give them everything they need. You're like, you're, you're our guest. You come in and you, you sleep in our beds and you have our best food and those kind of things. So then they reveal themselves to this couple and this couple's like, oh no. And then they, the story goes that they kind of curse the thousand homes for not being hospitable and bless this couple. And this couple goes, oh my gosh, you're the gods and can we be your priests and priestesses? And so then they set up this, this you know, temple and that's kind of the story. And that's the background. Furthermore, uh, the ancient people believed that gods were always manifesting in human forms. And whenever they saw something they didn't understand, like, oh my gosh, he couldn't walk, now he can, that must be a god in human form. That was just their default thinking. Now, put that all together and this makes total sense. So they're like, Oh my gosh, it's Zeus and Hermes. Welcome again. They've come back and given us another chance. So they wanted to be extra careful to be hospitable to them, right? Because they, they didn't want to go back to the thousand people who didn't and got cursed and all that. So they, so they, they try to do that. So we now know we can go back and there's all kind of archaeology. We find inscriptions and stories and plaques and altars that substantiate this. I'm not just making this up. So there's a temple outside Lystra. Uh, to Zeus that they had built because of this story. So they, you know, they send word quickly and the, the priest comes 
and he comes with a bunch of animals to sacrifice with wreaths around their neck. That's kind of how they did it. So their intent was to bring the, the animals we sacrificed, and then all of them go back in kind of a train and a procession with, with Zeus and Hermes, Paul and Barnabas at the front, and then they're gonna sacrifice to these guys because the gods are here, and you're gonna bless our community. That's what's happening. Are you, are you tracking? It makes total sense. Like, if you're a first century reader, you're like, oh, yeah, like, I, I, know, I know all about that. Well, <laughs> Thankfully, and this is our illustration today, Paul and Barnabas want nothing to do with this. And they're smart. These are smart people. Paul understands where he's at. He's probably studied the community. He knows the story. And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And as Jewish men, it says that they literally, picture the scene you're at. They ran into this crowd. So you got bulls and animals and wreaths and priests and and they're, they're praising them as gods. And they ran in the midst of them and said, no, no. And it even says they ripped their clothes. And this is a Jewish way what you would respond to hearing blasphemy or participating in blasphemy. It was the highest sin. No. Just picture the scene. It's just like they're just ripping their clothes. Don't worship us. Step away from the bulls. Don't touch them. You know, we want nothing to do with that. That's kind of the end. Then Paul we have a little bit of his speech, and that's what happens in Acts. These are larger speeches that Luke takes and he condenses down. So we have a little bit of what Paul says that day. And Paul turns it right back on God. He says, no, 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 you're missing it. We're not God. We don't make gods. God makes us. And God has done, you know, God has amidst you, and, he, and he's, he's being missional. He's being wise. How could he connect with us, crowd? The rain and the crops that you get, that's God. It's God being gracious. And that's an interesting point because Zeus was known as the God who provided rain and crops. So Paul's turning and he's turning the attention away from themselves back to God. And then we have this really weird end of the story. As Hannah said last, last week, I totally agree with her. So many of these Acts stories are like, what is going on? This is so weird. And so what a weird ending of the story. The, the people that wanted to stone Paul and Barnabas have tracked him down. They haven't given up. So they've taken the 18-mile journey on the, on the Roman paved road all the way. And so they're entering into the chaos of this scene. And ironically, they enter in, and I, I assume they're kind of a, officials of a certain, and they would be respected and given room to speak. And they quickly turn the crowd. They quickly turn the crowd that was in one moment worshiping Paul and Barnabas to they're kind of agreeing with Paul and Barnabas. They're like, they're right, they're not gods. They're actually imposters. They're faking you. They're trying to, you know, so they, it, it shifts really, really quickly. And for any of us that are, uh, that are prone to, to caring about what crowds think, <laughs> the fickleness of crowds, right, is on full display in this story. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful, because the very crowd that worships you one moment will turn on you the next. And so we're told, Luke tells us that they take Paul and they stone him. We don't really know where Barnabas is in this. You know, the, the inference is Barnabas wasn't stoned, but Paul was. And then they drag him out of the city thinking he's dead. And then Luke just, I love how he just kind of cavalierly writes about this. He kind of pops back up like this cartoon character. Just whoop, you know? <laughs> they came and we presume they believers prayed over him. And it says he just walked back into the city. And then the next day they left uh, for Derby, which is another little town. I think it reminds me um, a little bit that, that there is a cost to being a witness. And I think we can forget that. I can forget that as a believer, as a Jesus follower in America. Not that there's not cost, 
but talk to our brothers and sisters around the world. It's not even close. And so, uh, you know, I, I always, when I hear the gospel presented like, just trust Jesus and follow him and everything will go right for your life. All of us who followed Jesus for a long time are like, uh-uh, nope, <laughs> that's not right. I think it is the good and beautiful and true way. I think it's the life that's truly life, but it doesn't necessarily mean things are gonna go well for us. Jesus himself said it would be costly. Paul, I thought of, when I was reading this, I thought of 2 Corinthians where Paul writes, uh, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Just saw that. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Being a witness is costly. And I think Luke wants us to know that. We went from like a, moment, a hot second where they were seen as gods to the next minute they were getting stoned. The latter part is more what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I think the main idea that I want us to gather around and unpack a little bit this morning as it pertains to our lives is this idea that I think this is what Luke wants us to know that only God is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. That, that word worship is really interesting. It comes from two smaller words, worth and then ship. And that little word ship means the quality of something. So really worship is the quality of worth. When we see something, we're like, that is worthy. And if it's really worthy, we're worshiping it. So later today, when the Cowboys are demolishing the 49ers, Mike, I will be worshiping and Mike will not be, you know? <laughs> so that's when I say we all worship something. This is what David Foster Wallace understood so intuitively. We can't not worship. We're just made as, as humans to, to be worshipers of something or someone. And so it comes back to the quality of worship. And I think this story demonstrably tells us that only God is worthy of worship. It's in, if you go back to Paul's little speech, he's playing on this. He says, please, please don't worship worthless things. And he's talking about himself. He's like, don't worship, are you kidding me? You're so settling. You have no idea the chaos in my heart and mind and how broken I am. Don't worship me. Like, stop. That's worthless. You're wasting your worship. Turn it to God. All right, so so what? We always get to the so what. What does this mean for you? What does it mean for me as we follow Jesus? What does it mean for us as a community, as a church? And I think one thing, we often worship things that are not worthy of worship, and that would be a really good definition of idolatry, Worshiping things that are not worthy of worship, as you think through that. Uh, any, any Old Testament uh, reader, any reader of the, the Hebrew scriptures would immediately think of, of the, the kind of monumental story in, in the journey of God with his people of, of, of making the golden calf. And you may be somewhat familiar with that story, you may not. It's in Exodus 32 if you want to read it. But you know, Moses is up literally in the presence of God. He comes down, if you remember, his face is glowing with the glory of God. He's getting like words from God himself on how to live a flourishing life for his people and the people get bored while he's gone. And they, they, they cobble together some jewelry, melt it and make this like little teeny calf that they're just like, eh. it's like ludicrous until we realize that's us. And here's the, here's the journey for me is I, if you walked into the Rosenstill house, you would see a lot of things. You would not see golden calves. You would not see any little teeny idols. 
that so we could easily say, well, I don't, I don't do idolatry. I don't, and we mean that, oh, oh I do idolatry. <laughs> we all do idolatry. Uh, I've heard idolatry described as good things that become ultimate things. Or I really like pastor, author Tim Keller's definition. He says that an idol is anything that absorbs the heart and the imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give. Do we struggle with idolatry? Do we struggling with worshiping things that are not worthy of worship? Oh, yeah. I don't want to be judgy, but oh, yeah. <laughs> All of us do. Back to David Foster Wallace. Again, picture these like bright-eyed college students from these Ivy League schools listening to this. And he, uh, he, he, he profoundly talks about the danger of worshiping things that are not worthy of worship. Foster writes this, or he says this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual lure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been uh, codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth in front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. I mean, it's just, holy cow, it's so true. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. Go back to that opening scene, what water? <laughs> they're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you're doing. So I wanna give us a moment, and we're just gonna pause just for, just for a moment. Just to, I love just kind of having quiet a little bit more together. But I just want you to reflect, just for a moment. If you have your phone and you do a notes thing or you have a journal or you just wanna do this in your mind, you wanna pray this out, maybe it's a question you return to later, just ponder Holy Spirit, help us see in this moment, what do I worship that is not worthy of worship? Just give ourselves a second. You can close your eyes if you want. You can write just, just 30 seconds here. What do I worship? Where are the idols in my life? Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Help us to see. So we often worship things that are not worthy of worship. That's the negative example from our story, but there's a positive example. Uh, and the positive example is what relates to this, that we, we you, we, are not worthy of worship. Humans are not worthy of worship. This is where we see the, the possible. Sadly, we need this reminder again and again and again, especially in our culture now. If you look around, I think we have a tendency to deify because we've removed God largely from, from the stage and we now have to worship something. So I see increasingly we're deifying or worshiping other humans, and this makes all the sense in the world because this was the original sin, Adam and Eve trying to play God. And it happens to all of us that we, we want to try to play God. There's something broken in us that wants to. So you add those two things together, the propensity for us to worship other humans and humans wanting to be worshiped and we have where we are today. Uh, we have this example in our story as a positive example that counterbalances a, a passage we, we did not look closely at in, uh, that happened two chapters ago in, in chapter 12, and this is King Herod. I can't, I don't have time, but I can't explain to you 
what a massive figure Herod was. Uh, he was brilliant, brilliant leader, incredibly wealthy, incredible business person. He built in magnificent buildings. Like he was, he was the deal. And so it, we have this kind of as an aside in, in chapter 12. On the appointed day, Herod wearing his royal robes sat on his throne <laughs> and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Kind of a similar scene. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and was eaten by worms and died. The word of the Lord. <laughs> you read these things in Axel, I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, this, if you're just reading that, that's two chapters ago, you're like, oh, this is how we're supposed to respond. This is the positive example because something in us thinks playing God is awesome, but it's ultimately dehumanizing. It's the very opposite of awesome because we're not meant to be gods. Again, back to David Foster Wallace. Remember, he wrote these words more than 20 years ago, and they're more true now than ever. Here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. <laughs> but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience that you've had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you to the left or right of you on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. The African Bishop uh, St. Augustine talked about, I love how he describes sin. He says, sin is being curved in on ourselves. It's just kind of a repulsive thing, right? Curved in, that we're the center of our universe. We're our own gods. And I think the gospel does its work to unfurl us and open us up newly to others and to God. Uh, we live in an age, I think, if you just look around and think for a second, that's more prone to worshiping other humans than maybe ever before. We live in a, in a celebrity culture where these celebrities have almost godlike status and sadly, and I say this as a pastor, sadly, this is seeped into the church. Uh, if you wanna read more about this, Caitlin Beatty wrote a fabulous new book called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting uh, the Church. I, uh, I say this to young pastors, and I'm no longer a young pastor, so I'm, I've gotten to that stage of my career. Um, I say this to young pastors all the time, beware of the stage, this is the most dangerous thing you'll do. It's just the most dangerous place you'll be. Get on it and get off of it as quick as you can. <laughs> get other people up there. I was sharing with my spiritual director some opportunities I have in the next year to do a couple things that I'm excited about and they're God's grace and this and that. And he kind of nodded at me and he loves me a lot. He's like, boy, you're flying close to the flame. It wasn't like, good job, John, that's awesome. I'm like, well, you're Debbie Downer, geez. But I think he, he loves me, right? He loves me. Um, I, I think of, of Spotlight, right? This is a very simple analogy. <clears throat> but I think our, our desire to be uh, kind of turned in on ourselves 
manifests itself and that there's a part of us that always wants to be in the spotlight. We're just making sure it's just right. Can you guys see me all right? Is my, am I, this is good, you know. I think this is what we do in a million ways every day. We kind of we nuance it, right? And sometimes we do it in really creative, crafty ways to kind of slide a little more. Can you guys see everything about me, you know, that I'm doing today and I'm doing well? That's, that's the brokenness in us. And this story is telling us again and again as followers of Jesus that we don't want people worshiping things that are not worthy of worship. We should rip our clothes when we see this in us, right? And we should turn the spotlight back to God again and again where it belongs. One of uh, uh, my family's favorite, when we have Rose and Steel family dance nights, one of the music we dance to often is Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Love me some Tom Petty. And uh, we, uh, we got to go see Tom Petty, my wife and I, uh, before he passed away, may he rest in peace, and the Heartbreakers. They were, I think they're one of the greatest rock bands ever. They were, they were all, all the members were together for like 30 years. And it was awesome. And I love Tom a lot. And, uh, and he's really narcissistic. <laughs> and I remember that night, he was wearing like this leather vest. And, uh, and you know, you know all of his songs. It's incredible when you go to Tom Petty show. You're like, I know that song and that song and that song and that song. But I kid you not, at the end of every single song, as the crowd, rightly, it's a great song. They're just like, whoa, you're awesome, Tom Petty. He would raise his arms up in the air like this and be like, and then he would twirl. I'm not kidding you. And kind of made me want to throw up in the back of my throat a little bit. And then I went on to the next song and liked that, right? It is, that's kind of the deal. But I came away from that night never forgetting that. That's juxtaposed to other experiences I shared a couple of months ago. The Grecos, you guys know Emily and David, they're good friends of ours. We went uh, to see another bucket show list in Nashville uh, about a year ago with an artist named Andrew Peterson. Andrew's not near as well known as Tom, but he's well known and. and uh, and so he, the Ryman Theater is this historic place in Nashville, and he's sold out back-to-back nights, and he has all of his friends, and they're incredible musicians, and he's kind of doing this whole Christmas show. So you got to the end of that show, right? And you're expecting, and again, hear this artist. I'm not against encores or people, you know, I'm not against any of that, but I think there's better and worse ways to do it. He gets to the end of it, and, and Andrew pauses, and, and, uh, and people are cheering, and they're loving him, and they're loving the show, and he opens the Bible. And he reads the Christ hymn. And he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then he started simply an acapella version of Oh, come let us adore him. And thousands of people, the Ryman stood and said that as a picture of baby Jesus came up on the screen and he quietly left the stage, right? It's the difference between and this, right? And it's a stark difference and it's incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, I, I think we see this in the last scene of Paul. I kind of was meditating on this passage and trying to figure out how does that weird last scene where Paul gets stoned fit into this? And I'm not fully sure yet, uh, but one of the things I reflected on was Paul, uh, who literally is, was he dead? Was he out of that sure? Was he passed out? We're not sure, but he was close to death and he's risen to new life, just like Jesus pops back up. And he walks back into Lystra. If that was me and my brokenness, I would have been like, what's up now? 
You know, like bring it. <laughs> I would have had like a TikTok video story or whatever you do. I don't do TikTok, but whatever that is, like, yeah, look at me now. Come, you know, what does it say? He just walked quietly back into town under the cover of night. And then he left the next day to continue the mission of turning the spotlight to God, right? I don't know if that's why it's there, but I think that that's a powerful way to think about it. So I wanna give us just a second to reflect on this question. Another just kind of minute of quiet to bathe your soul in. Uh, where and when might I be playing God? Where, where in your life might you be just adjusting the spotlight a little bit to shine on you? When and where might I be playing God? Let's ponder that. Holy Spirit, just open our eyes to that. So I have a practice that I want us to practice this week that I think can break this cycle of, of being bent in on ourselves or curved in on ourselves, trying to play God, trying to be in the spotlight. I have a friend who is extravagantly gifted and has written numerous books and speaks and all that kind of stuff. And did it at a young age. He was on the stage at a young age, and that's just too much for anybody. And it, it caught up with him and almost broke him, almost broke his family. And uh, his spiritual director gave him this practice. And he said, for a long stretch of time, he's like, I want you to practice obscurity. I want you to practice obscurity. And I think my friend, if he was here today, and maybe I'll, I'll get him up here, tell it his story sometime, uh, he would say it saved his life, saved his ministry, saved his marriage. Going back to Caitlin Beatty's book, she says, celebrity in the final analysis is a worldly form of power and evaluation of human worth. It is not a spiritually neutral tool that can be picked up and put down even for godly projects. The moment celebrity is adopted and adapted for otherwise noble purposes, listen church, sharing the good news or inviting others into a rich kingdom life, it changes the project, it changes us. In a time when large swaths of the American church have merely mimicked worldly concepts of power, going for bigger and louder and glitzier, we have to return to the small, the quiet, the uncool, and the ordinary. Obscurity may very well be the spiritual discipline the American church needs to practice the most in the coming century. Practice obscurity, that word obscurity means being unknown. <laughs> being unknown. Our example in the Bible, again, if you're a, a Bible person and you're thinking about this concept, you immediately go to John the Baptist. Jesus' cousin, he, for a hot second, he was a celebrity. Thousands coming out to be baptized. He's this wild-eyed prophet eating locusts and honey and preaching the kingdom and baptizing people. And it had to get to him a little bit. It had to, he was human. So then Jesus's cousin shows up. He knows who Jesus is. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And his disciples were like, what? Who is that guy? We're the deal. Look at the crowds, right? Look at your followers on social media. You're the deal. That's what they would have been telling him. And he's like, no, you go, you go follow him. Not me, right? You go follow him. That's what, that's what John was saying to them. And and so they did, and then they came back to John later. They still don't get it, and they're like, John, 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 come here, come here. He is baptizing tons of people on the other side. He's stealing your thunder. They still don't get it, and this is what John says. He, Jesus, must become greater, and I must become less. What an anthem for followers of Jesus. What does it look like to practice obscurity? What does it look like to practice obscurity if you're on social media? <laughs> yeah. Right? And I'm not up here to just bash social media. I mean, I'd like to, 
but you know, are there redeeming qualities of social media? I don't know. I'm increasingly, you know, very skeptical because the whole thing is about this, right? The whole thing is about making ourselves look good. You know, I would say if you can't get off social media, if you're on it at all, and I'm on it like this much, use it to, to point the spotlight to God because I think it inherently is narcissistic. Some have called this age the, the age of digital narcissism. So maybe we practice obscurity by fasting from social media for a season or forever. Maybe we practice obscurity by, uh, by keeping our good deeds on the, on the DL, on the down low. Not finding convenient ways to share them with people, but just doing that. I hear story after story about Mr. Rogers, this Fred Rogers, just they're still coming out. Just extravagantly stories that I'd go out of my way to tell people because they're so cool. And no, he didn't tell anyone, not even his wife. Like, how do we keep it on the DL? Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. That's what our Lord says. When you do good, don't let your right hand even know what your left hand's doing. I think when we practice security, maybe if you're a bodily person, you can think about this, that you do something good or God does good things in and through you, which he, God wants to. That's part of the deal. As part of this journey, he invites us into this. You're extravagantly gifted and beautiful and loved. You're gonna do good things. But maybe instead of like spotlighting it and proclaiming it, it's just shh. It's that, it's that kind of subtle shift. As I've shared many times, my, my pastor, I consider my pastor to be Eugene Peterson. I never met him personally. But uh, all of his books and his sermons, I, just, I continue to just soak myself in them. If you've never read Eugene Peterson, please do. And, uh, and so I, I, Eugene, he was a pastor for 30 years at a, a church of like 400 in Baltimore. So he was a pastor at his core, but he was an extravagantly gifted man. And he wrote these books that became bestsellers. And then he, all for his 30 years, he was taking the scriptures that are sometimes hard to understand. And he was really good at the original languages and he'd rewrite them for his congregation. He just, that day, like, here's our pastor. I'm just gonna rewrite this because this doesn't make any sense. And I'm gonna put it in their vernacular. And it became a version of the Bible called The Message. You may be aware of it. I think it sold 30 million copies, 40 million, still selling really well. Can you imagine how wealthy Eugene was or could be? Well, he gave all the money away and his family still gives it all away. Eugene, if you read him all, he hated celebrity. He thought it was killing the church. He hated that he, in his own way, became a celebrity. He did everything to turn the spotlight again and again back to Jesus. I had the unique privilege with some friends. My friend, one of my friends is the editor of his posthumous works uh, to spend some time at his house that he built with his father. And it's, on, uh, it's in Calspell, Montana on Flathead Lake. It's beautiful. It's not ostentatious by any stretch. It is a very simple home. The, home, the beauty of the, being able to stay there for a couple of nights is the home was left virtually untouched after he and his wife died. So I'm walking into like, for me, it was a thin place to use the Celtic term, this little bit of heaven and a little bit of earth. And I'm not gonna lie, I rooted through some closets and I, I'm just, I'm not gonna lie to you. You know, I looked around like, this is Eugene Peter. I just wanna see how did he live? I mean, there's family pictures and the mugs he drank out of. I mean, it was just his home. Chairs he sat in and, and uh, I, I, I think there's a picture of me in his library. I mean, an incredible library. I'm like going through his books, seeing where he highlighted, what notes he wrote. And there's a little note left on his desk from, from the musician Bono from U2. Bono tracked him down because he was so impacted by the message and wanted to see him before he died. His family had to tell Eugene who Bono was. Like, you should take that call. 
you know, <laughs> you, should, you should invite him. And so for very much in not a weird way, not in a worship way, I mean, he was broken, all of his books talk about that. It was a holy space for me uh, to, to encounter him. I went out on his prayer, prayer bluff where he and Jan every single morning would, would pray over the church and pray over their kids and pray over their families. I had my devotions there in the morning, so what a gift. But I think my, my favorite spot in the entire house, and I'm telling you, I rooted through it at open closets, and, yeah, and it, was a, it was a powerful moment. I opened this one little closet, like going down this hall, his office is here in the closet. I'm like, huh, I wonder what's in here. And I walk in and uh, you had to get inside and then look on the wall that was recessed. You couldn't even see it when you first opened the door. And on this little wall, a picture will come up, are all of Eugene's awards. And I'm just like, here's the instantaneous thought I had. The church would be so much healthier if pastors hid their awards in closets. Can I get an amen? <laughs> or any of us. I'm like, holy moly. I, I'm collecting Eugene stories from people who knew him, and this is a recent one from a pastor that got to spend time with he and Jan right before he died. And he said that he was uh, in, his, in their living room, I can picture it, where they were sitting. And they didn't really have email, they didn't do any of that stuff. And, uh, and he was explaining the internet to them, <laughs> Google. <laughs> and so Jan, his wife, she's super sweet. She's like, you mean if I Google Eugene's name, stuff will come up? And he's, he just laughs, he's like, oh yeah. Yeah, and she's like, oh, cool. And she says, she, it's like, <laughs> and so she, he's between them. He says, he, Eugene's on the side and Eugene's just looking grumpy the entire time, not saying anything. And his wife's just animated, Jan's typing away. She's like, Eugene, look what this person said, look what this. And then he said, it went on for about five minutes. And then at one point, Eugene reached over him onto his wife's lap and slammed the laptop shut. And he said, I have enough problems remembering who I am from the very few people who know me well. I don't need to hear a bunch of stuff about me from people I don't know. Isn't that powerful? Practicing obscurity. And Jesus, the one who we follow, as we come to the table here, Jesus practiced obscurity. We just did this at Christmas, right? He's born in like a feeding trough to a teenager and like some ragtag, you know, shepherds are there. That's about it. And then 30 years, do we know anything? One story? That's it. He just, he's a stone cutter. He's a wood craftsman. We're not sure something with his hands. He's just doing that with his dad, just, just studying the scriptures. And then when he does start his ministry and starts healing and preaching powerfully, how many times did Jesus run from crowds? Go read the gospels all the time. He's like, there's a crowd, whoop. <laughs> and then when he did do these incredible things, he was like, And then he hung on a cross, the very focal point of shame in the first century, without any clothes on, right? Being mocked and whipped and beaten for the sake of the world for me and for you. And then even when he rose from the grave, he clouds himself like a gardener. <laughs> and yeah, he appeared to some people, but not many. Again, me, I would have been like, I'm alive. Let's have a, a tour. Jesus practiced obscurity. And yet here's the great irony. He is the one who's worthy of worship. That's the irony. He is the one. And we, we'll, we'll, I want to fix this in your mind as we go to the community. Listen from Revelation 5. And the elders in heaven are troubled. No one can open the scroll. They're, they're flummoxed. Then a lamb emerges, Jesus himself, who takes the scroll and opens. And then John describes what happens next. 
And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve your God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. We'll be here one day, we'll be here numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000s upon 10,000s. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice are saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and place. And then I heard every creature, this will be us one day in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him, to, to him <laughs> who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we come to the table, we come as worshipers, worshiping the only one who is worthy of worship. Forgive us, Father, for we know not what we do. Forgive us for creating idols in our life. Forgive us when we're the idol when we unduly receive worship, when we turn the spotlight on ourselves and not you, help us, Holy Spirit, to be a church that rips our clothes when we're the focal point, when we're the center. And may we be a church that's continually turning the spotlight on you, the one, the only one who is worthy of praise and worship, the only one who is the life that is truly life. As we come to the table, God, may we come as true worshipers, knowing that you and what you've done for us, you are our only hope, Jesus. You are our only hope, Jesus. And we worship you with all that we are. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. <laughs>